your Bibles and turn to Song of Songs. It's about in the middle of your Bible. You can look for it there in the Old Testament. And we're going to pick up on what we were talking about a couple weeks ago when I uh, started looking at this book, the Song of Songs. And we're going to try and finish it today, so we're going to move along as we uh, go through these uh, chapters that are coming up. Let's pray. Father, as we talk about marriage today and about your plan and purposes for it and what you intend, Lord, would you help us to hear your word this morning for those that are married to make notes in terms of application or maybe things that we should talk about as a couple after the service. And for those that aren't married and are thinking about that, Lord, would you show us what your standard for marriage is and your vision for it and what it can become when we choose to live according to your word. I ask that in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, two weeks ago when we started looking at this book, I said that the title, Song of Songs, is the Hebrew way of saying that this is the best of songs. It's the superlative form. and It's the best of songs because of what it talks about, the beauty of marital love as this couple comes together. And in that message, I shared that a true love, that kind of love, is a gift from God. That God has given us this ability to love one another and He wants that to be celebrated within the bond of marriage in a very special way. I also talked about how important it is for true love to wait. That when we understand God's plan for marriage, we're going to wait until we experience that kind of intimacy until we are ready for it. And we make that commitment to one person that we are going to be faithful to for the rest of our lives. Well, the third point that we didn't get into in that message is that true love is like a return to the Garden of Eden. And you can think about it in this way. When God created Adam and Eve in that garden setting, He brought them together. And the Scripture talked about how He made Eve to be a complement to Adam, to the man. They were different and different by design that together they might reflect the image of God as male and female. The two would become one, now joined in this special union. That was God's blessing. And in that context, the scripture in Genesis 2 said that the husband and the wife, the man and the woman, were both naked and they felt no shame. Here it is, before the fall, before sin entered into the world, God created this couple and brought them together in this most intimate of unions. And God says, it is good, and they felt no shame. Within the bond of marriage then, there is this opportunity to, in a sense, return to the Garden of Eden where when a husband and wife come together in that relationship, there is freedom and there is joy and there is intimacy and there are all of these things that Adam and Eve, in a sense, experienced without guilt and without shame. The Song of Songs celebrates the beauty of that kind of marital love. But granted, it is a difficult book to understand. No book in the Bible has had more commentaries written on it than the Song of Songs. It's interesting, as people kind of wrestle with what it is all about and how to interpret it. What I'd like to do today, then, is to really give you an outline for the Song of Songs and walk through it. This is how I understand it, and I want to share that with you this morning. Chapters 1 and 2 are the courtship, and that's what we looked at last week, or two weeks ago. And in this first section, uh, we see snapshots of a couple falling in love as they express their love to one another. 
And it is told primarily from the woman's point of view as she shares. They are equals. They have come together in this relationship. They are expressing their love to one another in that way. And that is really remarkable, as I said, for the time in which it is written. But it's what God intends, that two people would come together as man and woman and be joined together in this loving and tender way. Well, chapters 3 to 5 then, five, uh, chapter 5, verse 1, are the wedding and then the consummation of their marriage. And it begins in chapter 3, verses 1 to 5, with a dream. This is how I understand it. I mean, many of the commentators believe that there are two dreams that take place in the context of this book. And it helps us to understand it. This is poetry. It is expressing love. And sometimes it's hard to, you know, describe love and beauty with words. I mean, we struggle to find the right words to say. And that's why so often we turn to poetry to do that. But it begins with this dream. And it's the night before her wedding. And she is anxious. She is looking for her husband and she can't find him. And we see that in chapter 3 when she says, All night long in my bed I looked for the one my heart loves. He's tossing and turning, if you will. I looked for him, but did not find him. I will get up now and go about the city through its streets and squares. I will search for the one my heart loves. So I looked for him, but did not find him. The watchman found me as they made their rounds in the city. And she said, Have you seen the one my heart loves? She is anxious about her wedding day and she can't find her husband. Have you ever had a dream like that where you've lost something and you can't find it? On occasion, I've had a dream where it's Sunday morning and I can't find my Bible or my notes. And I'm here at church and I'm going, you know, where are my notes? I mean, I, I need this. I've got to get up and speak. And so I'll have that. Or Gail, my wife, will have this dream where she has been at the shopping mall and she comes out and she can't remember where she parked the car and she can't find the car. And she's like, now where was it? You know, and doing it. Those things are pretty normal that we can have dreams where we are anxious about something and in our subconscious we are working out those hopes and fears. And she here is relieved when she finds him in verse 4 and she holds on to him and she would not let him go until she had brought him into the house to the room of the one who had conceived her. Well, in verses 6 to 11 of this chapter, we have the wedding procession. And this is where uh, Solomon is coming for his bride. I remember the last time we looked at this passage, I said that there are some who believe that this Song of Songs is written about two people. It's Solomon and his bride that he is taking to be with him. Others understand this as three people. Uh, That it is this woman, who her true love is this shepherd who is in the hills, and Solomon is more the intruder in it. If this is a two-person view, then it may be Solomon literally who is coming here with this procession, uh, driving his chariot. It reads, Who is this coming up from the desert like a column of smoke? As they are riding across, the dust is rising up behind them like a column of smoke. He is perfumed with myrrh and incense made from all the spices of the merchant. Look, it is Solomon's carriage escorted by sixty warriors, the noblest of Israel, all of them wearing the sword, all experienced in battle, each with his sword at his side, prepared for the terrors of the night. And it goes on and describes their coming for the bride. If this is the three-person view, 
And this is really, she is expressing her love and seeing her husband coming for her. It may be that the reference to Solomon is a figure of speech, a metaphor. Because there is a sense where on your wedding day, every man is a prince and every woman is a princess. Weddings are like that. They are very special occasions. They have always been that. And they are meant to be celebrations. Joining this couple together as a husband and wife. In Judaism, uh, marriage ceremonies often lasted, or the celebration often lasted for a week. And the couple were treated like royalty during that time, where family and friends would wait on them and bring them things that they needed and celebrate it. And there was food and there was wine and there was dancing and it was this long celebration. Today we send couples off, you know, and send them on their honeymoon and wish them well and we want them to enjoy that time and celebrate together. But those weddings are very public, big celebrations usually. I tell couples in premarital counseling that planning your wedding is probably going to be the biggest thing that you're going to ever do as a family. As you plan for that day and you think of all the things that go into it, the flowers, the photographer, the location the uh, different parts of it, getting ready. And when you think about uh, this description here of Solomon coming with 60 warriors, soldiers, all of them dressed in their uniform. Imagine that, having uh, 60 groomsmen up here, all in their military uniforms, standing in attendance at this wedding. Wow, that would be something to see. But every wedding is like that. When the guys are in their suits or tuxes and the bridesmaids are in their beautiful dresses and the bride is in her wedding gown as she comes down the aisle, it is a beautiful occasion. Chapter 4, verses 1 to 15 is where the groom sees his bride and he expresses his love for her. And he describes her using images from nature that would have been meaningful to them. We read them and... We kind of chuckle sometimes at some of these things. You know, when he says, he describes her, how beautiful you are, my darling. Oh, how beautiful. Your eyes behind your veil are like doves, perhaps shy, perhaps looking even away as he focuses on her and her beauty. He describes her hair like a flock of goats descending from Mount Gilead. I don't know if you've tried that, guys, or how your wife would appreciate that. (laughs) Might take a little interpretation here to understand that. But in that day, uh, goats uh, generally were black, sleek and black. And so she has black hair. And when he describes the goats coming down the hills like Mount Gilead as this huge flock of goats is coming down with that black hair, he is seeing her lovely hair and it is flowing like tresses down from her face. And he loves that. He describes her teeth like a flock of sheep just shorn. Again, that sounds kind of funny to us, you know, coming up from the washing. And yet when you think about that image, it's as those sheep are coming up and they've been washed and they've been clipped. They are white. They are brilliant, if you will, from what they were before. And here is a woman whose smile is clean and bright and beautiful to him, and he sees that. And he describes her lips like a scarlet ribbon. So gentle, so beautiful, so lovely. Everything about her... Is perfect. There are seven features that he focuses on and affirms. And in Scripture, the number seven is a number that's used for perfection. 
And that's what he says in verse 7. All beautiful you are, my darling. There is no flaw in you. You are absolutely perfect. You are my bride. And he rejoices in her. In verse 9, he says that you have stolen my heart, my sister, my bride. That reference to his sister, she is not literally his sister. That was common also to call her a sister. Maybe in the same sense as we as believers. Uh, you know, the woman you are married to is your sister in Christ as well as your wife. And that man you are married to is your brother in Christ as well as your husband. But here is a man who has seen his bride coming down the aisle, if you will, and he is just overwhelmed by her beauty. Guys, can you relate to that? Those of you that are married on the day when you were married and you looked at your wife and you saw her in her wedding dress... I would think most guys would say that she was the most beautiful woman that I had ever seen. I love you and I love everything about you and there is that joy that is here. In verse 12, he says that you are a garden locked up, my sister, my bride. You are a spring enclosed, a sealed fountain. She has protected herself. She has kept herself pure for this day. She has guarded her virginity. And now she has come to give herself to her husband. And in verse 16, she invites him into her garden to enjoy its fruit. And that is what he does in chapter 5, verse 1, where he comes into her garden. My sister, my bride. It is very tender, it is very poetic in the way that it is describing this kind of intimate relationship that is meant to be celebrated and enjoyed. You see, there's a powerful statement here that within the bonds of marriage, sex is good and it is holy. It is a gift from God and it is intended for pleasure as well as for procreation. It is more than just a physical act. It's the joining of two people mentally and emotionally and spiritually as well as physically. And in that relationship, there is freedom and there is joy and there is a giving to one another of themselves without guilt or without shame. It's like a return to the Garden of Eden. Now unfortunately, that message hasn't always been taught in the church. In fact, in the history of Judaism and Christianity, there have been those who have always interpreted this book literally, that this is about the beauty of marital love. But the dominant view in early Christianity and in Judaism came to understand this book as an allegory. They said it can't be about what it's really talking about. It just can't be. It's got to be about something else. I mean, you're not supposed to talk about these things in church, right? Or you can't be as open about these things as we are being today. And so they interpreted it as an allegory. And they said, really what it's about, it's about God and Israel in the Old Testament. Or it's about God and the church. Or in the Roman Catholic tradition, it's about God and the Virgin Mary. And they would interpret the details. For example, these two, uh, uh, for example, in chapter 4, verse 5, where there is a reference where he talks about how lovely are her breasts. They are like two fawns, like twin fawns of a gazelle. That's really not about breasts. They would say that's about the two tablets of the law. Or it's about the Old Covenant and the New Covenant. Or it's about the church and tradition. 
It's anything other than what it seems to be talking about. And that was the way that it came to be understood. And, and celibacy and virginity were exalted as higher states and marriage was put down. Origen, Tertullian, Ambrose, Augustine all spoke against the literal interpretation of this book. They were early church fathers. Tertullian and Ambrose believed that extinction of the human race was better than sex within the marriage. That's how they viewed it. Better to just let the human race die out than to engage in something that they considered as sinful. What did they do with other passages of Scripture that speak about God's command to be fruitful and multiply or to fill the earth and subdue it or all those kind of things? I don't know. But out of their understanding, and perhaps they were influenced by kind of the Greek dualism of their age that saw the flesh as evil and the spirit as good and wanted to distance as far as they could. Even Augustine argued that the act of sex within marriage was innocent, but since it's accompanied by passion, it is always sinful, and therefore you should abstain as much as possible. In 550 A.D., the Council of Constantinople outlawed the literal interpretation of the Song of Songs. And the Roman Church kept adding days in which marital intimacy was forbidden until more than half the days in the year were excluded. It wasn't until the Reformation, and in particular the Puritans, that the literal interpretation became popular again. Dr. Leland Riken writes that the Puritan doctrine of sex was a watershed on the cultural history of the West. The Puritans devalued celibacy and glorified companionate marriage, affirmed married sex as both necessary and pure, established the ideal of wedded romantic love, and exalted the role of the wife. It lifted things up again to what I believe is the biblical teaching on this area. You see, that's why I said two weeks ago that the proper response to our world where it's kind of gone overboard on the whole sexual message and in terms of license and anything goes today, the proper response by us in the church is not repression. It's not to stuff it down. It's not silence, not to say anything, but it's to speak openly and frankly about what God teaches in His Word about marriage and love and intimacy. And to lift that up once again. And that's what we are trying to do here. And part of the reason why there are so many commentaries on the Song of Songs is that for about a thousand years there in the Middle Ages when they prohibited looking at this literally until the Reformation, that's when all these guys wrote about it. And I find it very interesting. Because it seems to me that what is repressed becomes more interesting. And in that repression and stuffing it in one way, they became more fascinated by it. And there were no controls. That's why all of a sudden this book could mean anything that they wanted it to mean. But that's not what God intended. Well, chapters 5 to 8, then, are love's lasting joys. What happens when a couple has now come together in marriage and are joined together? And how does that relationship develop in the years ahead? Well, again, I believe that chapter 5, verses 2 to 8, are a second dream. And in this dream, her lover, her husband, has come to her and he's knocking at the door. She's asleep. I slept, but my heart was awake. And then she's saying, I'm having a dream. And in this dream, he comes and he wants to 
initiate. He's making an overture to her. And she's saying, not tonight, dear. You know, I'm tired or I've gone to bed or I know what you're thinking. And, and she puts him off. And then later, she reconsiders. I mean, she says, I've taken off my robe. Must I put it on again? I wash my feet. Must I soil them? You know, she doesn't want to do this. This is inconvenient. And then she reconsiders and she goes to look for him. And she opens the door and he's gone. And her heart sinks. And this time she looks for him and she doesn't find him. And this time the watchmen find her as they made their rounds in the cities. And they beat her and they bruise her and they abuse her. Those watchmen of the walls. And there is this heartache and there's this missed opportunity and there is this danger that is there that can threaten a relationship. There's a realism here, even though it's a dream, a realism about how this world works. We live in a fallen world and there is not always you know, perfect intimacy. Perfect intimacy and oneness is not the constant experience of people who are married. There are challenges. There are threats in this world. We have to work at oneness if we are going to protect that bond and grow in that relationship. There are misunderstandings between a husband and wife. There are challenges to work through if our love is going to last a lifetime. And we need to communicate honestly and openly. We need to understand our differences and accept them. And those of you that are married know what that's like. You know that as men and women, we sometimes look at things differently. We might look at relationships differently or how we're raising our kids or how we handle our finances or what we want to do with the home or different things like that where we just look at it differently. And it's not right or wrong. It's kind of balancing each other out. And God did that for a reason, that we might learn to love each other, understand, work through those things, and grow in oneness. Sometimes our sin, our selfishness gets in the way. Sometimes we say something we wish we hadn't and we have to say, I'm sorry, do you forgive me? It's the same way with God in terms of wanting to maintain oneness in our relationship with God. Our sin gets in the way there too. and There are times when we may feel very close in our relationship with God and sense that kind of intimacy and fellowship. And other times where it feels distant and we need to come back to God. That's what's going on here in this relationship. In chapter 5, verse 9, her friends ask her, Why do you love him so? What is it about your guy that you really love? Most beautiful of women. And in uh, verses 10 to 16, she will describe her husband in a way that would make any man proud. She talks about her husband. My lover is radiant and ruddy. He is outstanding among 10,000. I love his hair. His hair is wavy. It's black as a raven. His eyes are like doves by the water streams. They sparkle when they look at me. He describes, or she describes his cheeks like beds of spice. His arms are rods of gold. His body is like polished ivory. This is quite some guy here. His legs are pillars of marble. I mean, you know, this is like Michelangelo's David. And she's excited about him. This is my guy. This is my husband. Do you sense that there? And in verse 16, she says that this is my lover. This is my friend. This is more than just physical. This is that kind of heart relationship where he is my best friend. 
You feel that about your spouse, your husband, your wife? Do you feel like they are your best friend? And they just make everything you do in life better. You just enjoy whether it's camping or cooking or cleaning or going shopping or going to a movie or whatever it is you like to do. It's all better because of the person that God has brought into my life. She says in verse 3 of chapter 6, I am my lover's and my lover is mine. There might be difficulties, there might be tension at times, but they are going to work through it. You see, for love to last a lifetime, there has to be an unconditional commitment to each other. There has to be that kind of commitment that says, I am going to stick with you no matter what. For better or for worse. For richer or for poorer. In sickness and in health. I'm going to be there with you. And you can count on me. In chapter 6, verse 13, the friends here want to gaze on her beauty. And he objects. She's my wife. She belongs to me. She's my bride, if you will. And in chapter 7, verses 1 to 9, he describes her beauty from her feet to the top of her head. This is for my eyes only. And in chapter 7, verses 10 to 13, she gives herself completely to him. There is that response of love again as it goes back and forth here. You see, for love to last a lifetime, there needs to be an exclusive commitment to one another. This is what God said in Genesis 2.24 when He said, For this reason a man will leave his father and mother and cleave to his wife, and the two will become one flesh. When a couple are joined together in marriage, they are making this public profession of the world of their vows, their commitment, and their relationship on that day with everybody else in the world changes. They will still love and honor their parents, but it's different now. Their first loyalty is to each other in that household and marriage that they are establishing. Their relationship with their friends changes. Past dating relationships or anything like that, it is now exclusive in that relationship with one another and that's the way that God intends. And what we see here is a man, a husband, who is enthusiastic in expressing his love for his wife. And we see a wife who, on the other hand, is also enthusiastic in giving of herself to her husband. There is this mutual joy. And men, I would ask you, do you let your wife know how much she means to you in ways that communicate love to her? By your words, by your thoughtfulness, by a card or gift or letter, by acts of service, by help around the house, by meaningful touch. And wives, do you respect your husband and do you let him know how much he means to you? Is he your David? Is he your Solomon and you tell him that? Do you tell him how much you appreciate his hard work or his faithfulness or his love or the way that he spends time with the kids? Do you give yourself freely to Him without reservation? In chapter 8, verses 1 to 4, we see that there are social restraints to love. We can't do everything in public that we would like, that we would do in private. She said, Here, if only you were to me like a brother who was nursed at my mother's breast, then if I found you outside, I would kiss you and no one would despise me. At that time, it was more acceptable for her to show affection to a brother than it was to her husband in public. Modesty was called for. In our age, 
Modesty is still called for in public. Restraint in how we show affection. We can't do everything in public that we would do in private. And then chapter 8, verses 5 to 7. I know I'm going to go a little long here, but I want to finish this because this is, this is the climax of the book of the song. In verses 5 to 7, the writer of Scripture here tells us that love is as strong as death. Look at this, beginning in verse 5. The friends ask, Who is this coming up from the desert, leaning on her lover? And she says, Under the apple tree I roused you, and there your mother conceived you. There she was in labor. Gave you, she gave you birth. Would you place me like a seal over your heart, like a seal on your arm? A seal was a symbol of possession, of ownership, of kind of this exclusiveness. In the same way that we give rings to each other and this ring says, I belong to another. That's what they were talking about here with that seal on their heart. I am committed to another. Would you place that seal on me? For love is as strong as death. Its jealousy is unyielding as the grave. It doesn't give up. It pursues. It holds on. It yearns for that one that you love. It burns like a blazing fire, like a mighty flame. It is like the very flame of the Lord. That's the alternate reading to verse 6. Many of your Bibles are going to have a footnote for the words like a mighty flame. And in that footnote, it's going to say that the alternate translation is that it burns like the very flame of the Lord. I believe that's the better translation that love is like the very flame of Yahweh. It comes from Him. And when you taste that and experience it, you understand what that love is like. It is jealous, it is possessive, it is protective, but it is also unconditional, it is generous, it is sacrificial, it is kind. And you can't quench that kind of love when it's there in a relationship. And you can't buy that kind of love. That's what he's saying. If one were to give all the wealth of his house for love, it would be utterly scorned. You can't buy that. Where does that kind of love come from? It comes from God Himself. We see that in 1 Corinthians 13, 4-8, where God describes love. And we see it again in 1 John 4, 7-16, where He says, We know love because He first loved us. And this kind of marriage is so holy that God will use it as a picture of the relationship that exists between Christ and the church in the book of Ephesians. In the end, it is about God. It does have something to say about God and our relationship with Him. Because Christ, as our groom, loves His church, loves us, passionately and intimately. He knows everything about us and He still loves us and cares for us. And He laid down His life for us. And it is also how He wants us as His bride to love Him freely, unreservedly, holding nothing back. Jesus, I am Yours. And I give myself fully and completely to You. I love you with all my heart and soul and mind and strength. Here I am, Lord. I want to follow you. Do you understand then how in a Christian marriage a husband's commitment to his wife can be like Christ's commitment to the church? 
and how a wife's commitment to her husband can be like the church's commitment to Christ. It's a picture of what God intends. In that relationship, we experience this taste of oneness and intimacy as in no other relationship. But that's why in heaven, there won't be marriage. Jesus said that. And there won't be singleness either. Because in that day, we will be one with God and with each other and we will experience that kind of intimacy and joy and freedom without sin with everyone. And there will be that perfect oneness and communion. What a blessing that will be. A biblical marriage gives us a taste of what that will be like. I want to give you some application today to take with you as you think about these things. If you're here and you're married, I'd encourage you to read this book with your spouse and talk about what you heard today. Now, these notes get put online and they'll be on our website a little bit later in the week. Maybe today, maybe tomorrow you can check. You could print them off and you could talk about it. If you want to have a stronger marriage, I encourage you to take the marriage class or attend a marriage conference or read a good book on marriage. And these are just a few. There are many out there that are good. You can read His Needs, Her Needs by Willard Harley to understand some of the differences between men and women. You can read the five love languages to understand how we give and show love sometimes in different ways and we need to speak each other's language. You could read a book like Love and Respect by Emerson Egeritz that talks about the differences again between men and women and God's purpose and design for marriage. All of that can help us to experience what God wants in our relationships. Well, I'm going to close in prayer. We're going to end our service there because we've gone a little bit long. I don't know if the worship team will come up and just play some music as we leave, but um, I'm going to end our service here today. So would you please stand? And after this prayer, you'll be dismissed. Father, I thank You for Your Scripture. I thank You for what it has to say about marriage and that most special relationship between a man and a woman. Help us to honor You. I pray for the marriages in our church that they would be strong and healthy and growing and that they would be a witness to friends and relatives and the world around us of what You intend our marriage relationship to be. And Lord, if we're struggling in that, I pray that we would take those steps to build a stronger and healthy marriage. May You bless each one as we go today. Thank You that You go with us. In Jesus' name, Amen.